Independence Day, as they say in Great Britain, Happy Rebellion Day. Did you know that's actually what they teach, that America rebelled? Well, we have a message for Great Britain. We won. (laughs) We won. You know, there's a lot of confusion today about the sin of what is called patriotism or the sin of nationalism. Especially, and I'm not being critical here, but especially among the millennial generation, there's a lot of confusion. Is it really a good thing to be patriotic toward America? Well, there are several reasons for that. Greg made some allusion to it this morning. Some say we should not be patriotic. We should not pledge our allegiance to any specific country, especially as believers, since this country is not our eternal home. There's a certain truth that America is not our eternal home. However, it's sheer ignorance of the history of our nation and its founding, and furthermore, history in general, to say that we should not be patriotic. That's ignorance, did you hear me? And one of the reasons is because if it were not for America and specifically God's blessing on our nation, we probably would not be assembling this morning in any way because we're told that there would be no freedom to assemble, period. People who don't like America and don't like our freedom are free to go wherever they like and try to express their opinion. Because if you've traveled around the world, you realize that no matter how bad our nation maybe appears, it's still the best place to live on earth. And if you don't believe me, fly to the Middle East and live there for a month or two and come back to the great United States and you'll want to kiss the ground you walk on because we live in a blessed nation What did the earliest settlers in America believe that we were here for? This is interesting, by the way, because when you study American history today or even search for any American history book, listen to me closely. What has happened to patriotism in America? Here's what's happened. History has been revised and rewritten. And if you do not believe me, search any American history book that you want that's taught in major universities. Let me just name a few. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and I could go right on down the list. All of those schools were founded before the Constitution for this one particular purpose, to proclaim clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it was written inside the documents of these institutions that the people who would be presidents of those schools would be pastors and leading ministers and clergy of the United States of America. And the reason was is because they realized why America was founded. Listen to me carefully, people. America's independence and freedom was not given to us by the founding fathers. That was in 1776. When was Jamestown, Virginia founded? 1607. And years before that, settlers had come over to the shores of America for one particular reason. They were searching for religious freedom to flee from the wrath of the Church of England. They did not want to be persecuted and killed, and they came to the shores of this country. Does that mean 100% did? No. There were a small fraction who came over for other reasons, but a majority of the people came to the shores of this country to worship God freely. How do we know that? 
Do you realize that before 1776, before the Declaration of Independence, small colonies had come over and they formed compacts? If you go back in history and you search, one professor searched some 80 colonies and discovered that these colonies they had written had compacted together or covenanted together to serve God and to keep God's laws and to propagate the gospel. And in so doing that, hear me carefully, our founding fathers modeled what was already laid in the small colonies along the United States of America, and they learned from those colonies what it meant to form a government to be one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. It didn't come across with the Founding Fathers. It came across with the earliest settlers who came to America to flee persecution and to worship God. How far we have fallen. So any time that you hear some type of a history book tell you some ridiculousness about, well, the Founding Fathers and the signers of the Declaration are the ones who came up with this idea, they don't know history. They didn't come up with the idea. The idea had been laid a hundred or more years before they even wrote the Declaration of Independence. Where has our history gone? By the way, I graduated high school in 1991. May I say this to you? I didn't hear one thing in 1991 about what I just told you. It had vanished from the schools. I was completely ignorant of American history. And most people don't know that today. We live in the great state of Virginia. Great patriots. Great patriots served and lived and fought and died in this state for the freedom that you and I now enjoy. And we don't even know what they fought for. We only know what we're told. The historical revisions today focus on two founding fathers. Who are they? Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Why do historical revisionists focus on those two men? You ready? They are the most irreligious of the founding fathers. And they like to take what they believed and some of the things that they said and mirror them and make us think that that was the concept of all. That is just simply not true. And what happens to a nation that doesn't know where it came from? This is what happens. It doesn't know where it's going. And that is how critical race theory, that is how Marxism, that is how racism, and that is how unpatriotism bleeds its way into a culture and a generation because they don't know where they came from. What I'm saying this morning is exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. God created this nation to be a specific, peculiar people by God Himself. God called the nation to be a kingdom of priests and a light unto the world. And you know what they did? They forgot that. They didn't realize that. America was founded. Do you know why they were founded? Here is a great quote. We're going to read God's word first, but let me get to this. John Quincy Adams gives this quote, and this is what he wrote. It is not that in the chain of human events, 
the birth, is it not that the, in the chain of human events, the birthday of a nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior? Listen to that closely. That it forms, that is, the birthday of a nation, it forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth? That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity? And you can Google and read the rest of his quote. What is John Quincy Adams saying here? He's actually saying that America, in the eyes of the, fo- the founders and those who came here, was actually founded to do what? To propagate the gospel and to continue to move it around the world. Now, you don't hear this, do you? Because we don't go to the original sources and read them. John Quincy Adams says that the foundation of America was given to further the gospel. Our founding fathers believed that it, was, it moved west from the Apostle Paul and it finally came to America. And what was America's responsibility? America's responsibility was to move that on around the world. How do we know that, by the way? Did you know that our first president, George Washington, made sure that America spent $300,000 to give Bibles out across America? Do you know what the first event was in the inauguration? Washington held up God's word and kissed it. And then the military in the rotunda in the Capitol had a several hour long worship service. Now, did Washington believe in the separation of church and state? By the way, what is that? What is the separation of church and state? That is another thing that has gone completely ridiculous. Thomas Jefferson was writing to another pastor of a Baptist church in response to that man's question. And Jefferson's point was that no church organization would dominate the government and make people worship a certain church, meaning primarily who? The Church of England. He was saying, we are going to protect you from Britain. They're not going to come over here. That is how the separation began. Where have we come to today? Today we believe in the separation of Christians from government. most ridiculous thing that's ever been in American history. It's just simply not there. As a matter of fact, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, a majority of them were ordained ministers. So we know this to be true. America was founded with a mission in mind, and that was to share the gospel of Christ. Now, Brian was reading my mind this morning when he talked about Psalm 33, and I just want you to read this with me. Would you stand? Let's read this together. It's the most important thing we'll be able to do today. Just two verses, Psalm thirty-three, ten. Let's read together. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who he has chosen as his heritage. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for our country. Thank you for our Savior. And Lord, we pray today that we will honor you in our hearts, 
in our church, in our nation, and all throughout our land. Thank you for being good to us, even when we have turned our back upon you. Thank you for being faithful when we have been faithless. And thank you for extending mercy and grace to our nation, Lord. Although we know we don't deserve it, we give you praise and we give you thanks this morning for who you are. You are a good God and you're gracious to us. May we honor you with our life and in our nation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As we think about Daniel living in the middle of exile, God's nation that he had planned to be a kingdom of priests had sinned against God. They had broken every Ten Commandments. Every commandment of the ten they had broken, violated. And God told this nation, if you break my law, I will break you. If you scatter my word, I will scatter you. In Leviticus chapter 26, God lays out the map of exactly what he would do to the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, for every Sabbath year that they violated, God said, I will punish you seven times. Israel, of course ignored God's Sabbath law. They found out that it was better to keep business open on Saturday. They could make more money. And instead of every seventh year just letting the fields rest, they decided they would go out and replant them. And they went on for years and years and years, and they thought, well, God hasn't done anything, so maybe he really doesn't care. Well, God continued to send the prophets. He continued to send his word to the people and tell them what they should do. And they ignored the prophets. They killed the prophets. They burnt the word, and ultimately God called them into exile. He pulled them out of their land, had their temple destroyed, and scattered them throughout the earth, leaving just a small remnant of people in the nation of Israel. Daniel chapter 9 explains that Daniel was in Babylon, reading from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 25. The same section that we love to quote the scripture, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to do you good and not evil. God knew the plans he had for Israel, even though they were in Babylon, suffering anguish and pulled out of their land. God said, I know exactly what I'm doing. I have plans to do you good and not harm. But Daniel, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant of Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. In other words, he was reading Jeremiah and he saw that God said, I am going to punish you for 70 years in Babylon. And as Daniel begins to read this and looks at the calendar, he says, you know what, God, the time is about up. We're going to get to go back home. And so he starts to pray here. He says, I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, by the way, the title of my message today is How to Pray for America. And would you actually like to know how to pray to get God's attention? Wouldn't you like to know that when you say a prayer, God actually hears your prayer and God answers it because that's exactly what this is. There are three very large prayers in Scripture. All three are answered, and all three are in chapters 9. 
You ready for this? Daniel chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9. You want to read three of the greatest prayers in the Bible? Just remember 9, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Those three chapters contain prayers that these men prayed to God and God answered them. So what are five, five essentials in every prayer? See, this is what you need to remember. Pull a napkin out, pull the uh, giving envelope out that you didn't use this morning, and write down five essentials in every prayer. What's the first essential in every prayer that God answers? Number one, adoration for His character. If you want God to hear you, adore who He is. Listen to what Daniel says about God. Where did my on-screen Bible go? Here it is. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. I'm going to work out of my text. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Notice these things that He says about God. O Lord, the great and awesome God. Do you know how great God is today? You know, Karen and I this past week were out on our deck and we just decided to take just a minute because we've been at it all summer to lay back on the deck and just kind of look up into the sky. And it was dark that evening and I laid back and I looked up and there's this one huge star up there and I just began to ponder. You know, sometimes you can get so busy that you stop to to think about God's greatness. I looked way up at that star, you know, in my mind. One verse in Genesis talks about God creating the second heavens. And here's what it says, and He made the stars also. You know, if you study astronomy or whatever you like to study about the second heaven, there are millions and millions, countless stars. Nobody can count them. Galaxies upon galaxies. And God's Word gives it one line. He made the stars also. About just a little thing to God. But I began to focus on that star, knowing that those stars are bigger than the earth, how huge they are, how immense. And God calls them all by name. You know how great God is? We went to the ocean. I always read Jeremiah. Don't ask me why I read a very depressing book while I'm at the ocean, but I always do because... Jeremiah talks about God's greatness and His power. And he says, you know, God, you are the one that keeps the ocean from exceeding its bounds. It pounds and it beats and you're the one that says, stop right there. Because God's power does that. God ordained the ocean tide. God ordained the stars in the heaven. And Daniel recognizes this looking out in Babylon and says, Lord... You are a great God, and you are an awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So the first thing that we have to do, the first essential, is adore God. But what is the second essential? We have to confess our sins. And I want you to notice here, when Daniel prays to God, he doesn't talk about the Democrats or the Republicans... He doesn't talk about the Virginians or the West Virginians. He talks about we. He includes himself in the sins of his nation, his leaders, and his forefathers. So notice what he does in verses 5 through 14. We, 
have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. I could take a long time here. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We have rebelled. He is not leaving anything out here. Any form of sin, whether it's intentional, unintentional, accidental, on purpose, or with malice. He says here that we are responsible and we have done this, God. Turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our president and members of Congress and our fathers. They spoke directly to the leadership of our nation and we did not listen to you. By the way, isn't it ironic that even today that Congress opens every session in what? Prayer. By who? A chaplain that is paid for by what? Your tax dollars. Now isn't it interesting that the Congress people get to say a prayer and they don't let you in school. By the way, you should read the statistics when prayer was taken out of school, and especially the Ten Commandments and prayer, how premarital, or premarital, listen to me, how birth rates and all types of sin rose to the, to the top when God's Word and prayer were taken out. Amazing. We have sinned against you. We have not listened to your servants who spoke to our leaders and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, look at this, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. You imagine this kind of prayer? God, you, you deserve righteousness, but we open shame. Nothing to hide. We're saying to you that we sin. We're wrong. As at this day the men of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. God, you are righteous for judging our nation and driving us into Babylon and whatever part of the earth that you have judged us, we deserve it. Because we've rebelled against you and we did not listen to your word. By the way, when's the last time you heard anybody pray a prayer like that to God? Daniel goes on to say, O Lord, to us, O Lord, belong open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law. All of them. From the top to the bottom. And turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. The idea of refusing here is stiffening your back like a mule. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. Doesn't matter what you say, God. Now notice what he says. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, you should circle this in your mind and write Leviticus 26. Go read it, the most mis 
understood and unread chapter in the whole Pentateuch. But one of the most important. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. Do you see what He's saying? God, we're getting exactly what we deserve. You are so good, God, because You told us what You were going to do. You told us if we sinned against You, You would punish us seven times. You warned us and told us that instead of being the head, we would be the tail. You warned us and told us that if we didn't exalt You, that You would demote us. And God, You are faithful because You are doing exactly what You said You would do. We cried for Your blessing while ignoring Your Word. And you kept sending us prophet after prophet, warning after warning, and we ignored you. Oh God, you are righteous to judge. This is what he's saying. Because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his word which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Listen to what he's saying. We have been judged and exiled, and as a nation, we haven't come together and prayed to you. We haven't said a word. Turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Isn't that interesting? Even in the midst of judgment, the people ignored God, did not pray, did not read His Word. Now, I don't want to be dark this morning because this is our 245th year of independence, but let me ask you a question. How long can God wink at America? How long? How long? We are promoting sin by the loads. Funding abortion and rampant immorality around the world with our tax dollars. I don't mean to be dark here. I'm I'm being truthful. We are pushing our agenda on foreign countries around the world and not just pushing our agenda, we're funding them. And as a nation telling them, if you don't allow this to go on in their life, we will cut off your funding. How long can God wink at that? Not only that, we are promoting the biggest delusion in the history of mankind today, and that is the delusion of sexuality. How long can a nation try to cram things down people's throats that there's no difference between a man and a woman? How long? How long can a nation, from the top working its way down, say there is no such thing as immorality or right or wrong? How can a nation say there's no such thing as purity in sexual relations? That marriage doesn't matter. That marriage isn't between a man and a woman. Marriage can be whatever it wants to be. And folks, how long? These are foundational principles in God's Word. And when we violate those principles, and when we endorse those principles and force other nations to do them how long can we expect god to bless america now thank god let me just say this thank god there is a group of people in america 
that pray for our nation and do not support that and speak out against it, and they're willing to stand up for it. A pastor in Virginia who stood up for a local school teacher who would not endorse the agenda, the sexual revolution agenda. They tried to fire him. A court instated him back in. And now there's a big battle. That pastor, that church, that teacher, and that leadership is being pounded today by the sexual revolution. Coming to a city near you. What will we do? What will we do? Will we be the faithful who stand and say, Come what may, we will stand upon truth and righteousness, and we will not cower to the bullying threats of the people of power? Will we stand? Will we stand united? Will we join arms? Will we covenant with one another to say, if you take a stand for God, we will do everything we can to back you, support you, and I'll guarantee you, you'll never miss a meal or a bill. We will help fund you because you stand for righteousness. There are people in America There are people in this church who have convictions like that. Thank God for them. But as a nation, how long? How long? Well, we don't want to stay on that all day, do we? Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all His works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. The third essential in every effective prayer, remember there's adoration for God's character, confession of our sins. The third, there's thanksgiving for God's goodness and blessing. We give Him thanks. Look at what Daniel chapter 9 verse 15 says. Daniel writes this, And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as at this day, We have sinned and we have done wickedly. And now he begins to thank God, thanking Him for His goodness. And he appeals to Him in verse 16. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy hill, because our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What a plea. What an uh, uh, adoration. What a thanksgiving. And now what a, a confession. He's asking God, God, not because of us, but because of you, 
do this. Now notice the order here, just a practical pastoral point. We don't just come to God and say, Lord, thank you for the day, now bless me, bless my family, bless our country, and bless everything about us, and thank you for the blessings, amen. I'm not saying God doesn't hear that prayer, but does God really answer that prayer? Is that prayer really sincere and thoughtful? No. Instead, the prayer that's sincere and thoughtful is one that gives thanks to who we're talking to, the great and awesome God. And then going into this God is so awesome and great and holy that we are so unholy and unlike Him that we don't even deserve to be talking to Him. And here's why. Because we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We are clearing the slate before the Heavenly Father. And then we are giving thanks to Him because He's even willing to hear us. And now... We ask Him what we want Him to do. And we don't ask Him because of our righteousness. What do we ask Him? Because of His goodness and His mercy and for His glory. You know, when's the last time we prayed like that? Lord, we want You to do this not for our comfort. We want You to do this for Your glory. Now, if that means that we are uncomfortable and You're glorified, then... Keep the heat on. But God, this is about you. And if you want to shine through whatever circumstance in our life or our nation, whatever brings you the most glory, you do that, Lord. And this is what Daniel prayed. And then, did he just think it was going to end there? No. Daniel expected God to answer. Look in verses 20 through 23 of what Daniel says. While I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel... I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Listen to this. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. Are you all getting the picture of what's going on in third heaven here? God heard Daniel's prayer and summoned Gabriel and said, Go to my servant Daniel and give an answer to his prayer. By the way, I'm getting ready to do a series on spiritual warfare. There is an unseen realm that you and I live in of principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this world that most, most Christians do not know about. We don't understand depression. We don't understand temptation. We don't understand evil and influence and so forth. And when you don't understand how that operates in your life, you're oftentimes defeated. And the best way to defeat your enemy is to know his strategy. And that's what we're going to talk about. Not only his strategy, but how to defeat him because God has given us answers in his word. But this is something that happened in second and third heaven that we know nothing about. God heard Daniel's prayer 
and he sent Gabriel to answer it. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. You know, when I read that, it kind of makes chills go up my arms. Here was Daniel alone in Babylon, one of the only ones who would take a stand for the Lord God, persecuted and hated by all the congressmen and the senators, and they tried to run Daniel out of Babylon and kill him. When he prayed to God, Gabriel's first message to Daniel was, You are greatly loved. If you this morning know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know what God the Father says about you. Let it soak in. You are greatly loved. I don't care how the world treats you. I don't care how your family treats you, your neighbors, anybody else. Almighty God says you are greatly loved and He hears your prayer. You are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then he begins to explain to Daniel what we call the 70 weeks of Daniel. That was, he broke the news to Daniel that yes, 70 years had passed, but there's going to be 463 more. Because Israel is going to pay for their sin. And by the way, if you've ever heard the 70 weeks of Daniel... Seventy times seven is 490. You can trace this in history, by the way. 483 of the 490 years have been completed. There are seven years that remain. How many years is that? That's one week. One week in the prophetic calendar, which we know from God's Word, is broken into two phases, three and a half years and three and a half years, and we call that the what? The great... Tribulation period. And the only thing that awaits that is God's restarting the prophetic time clock to deal with the nation of Israel, to to pour out wrath and judgment on that unbelieving nation right now for this one purpose, to break them ultimately and end the 70 weeks of Daniel and make that nation turn back to the Messiah that they have forgotten. And Jesus told them that. He said, you have, you've rejected me, but you're going to one day say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Woe unto you, weeping for the nation of Israel. And they were going, what's the matter with him? What's he crying? Because he knew what the 70th week of Daniel would do to that nation. 483 years past, seven years to come, known as the Great Tribulation Period. And we are the church, the age of the church, right in between the 482nd and the 483rd year when God stopped the time clock dealing with the nation of Israel. And Daniel prayed, and God answered his prayer. Not the way he expected, but God answered it. Now, what are some things that we can learn about our nation? I did a little research this week. I just want to share this with you. I don't want to read all this. I've already told you some of the things, but... Here was the deal. America was founded, by and large, to propagate the gospel. It was learned from the colonies. It was written and recorded by the founding fathers of America. How did this come about? Did you know that during the 1730s, there was a movement along the eastern seaboard of the United States called the Great Awakening? You ever heard of it? 
You ever heard of a man named George Whitfield? I read a, wrote a research paper on Whitfield. Whitfield used to travel up and down the east coast of the United States and people would throw dead cats at him, tomatoes. People would try to get above him and throw bodily fluids on him while he preached. You should read about Whitfield. But God used that man to spark revivals throughout the east coast of America that could not be quenched. Not only did it impact small towns, it also impacted people, people who went into leadership. And Whitfield's preaching, he would always preach on the fires of hell. And it has been recorded before that Whitfield could never preach a sermon on hell that he did not weep. Would that God would make us like that. Of course, we don't hear sermons on hell anymore, do we? Because that offends us. But hell is real. And Whitfield knew that as he stared out into the eyes of all those townsmen and colony people, that a majority of those he preached to were going to die and go to a Christless hell. And it gripped his heart. And oftentimes he would sit there and take persecution and all of this terrible things that people did and he would preach to these people. Well, this great awakening, the impact of the great awakening was enormous. The colonies each recognized that God's sovereignty over all included the kings and so forth. Yale historian Harry Stout writes, listen to this quote, Over the span of the colonial era, American ministers delivered approximately 8 million sermons. This was following the Great Awakening. The average 70-year-old colonial churchgoer would have listened to some 7,000 sermons in his or her lifetime, totaling near, nearly 100,000 hours of concentrated listening. This is the number of classroom hours that it would take to receive 10 separate undergraduate degrees in a modern university without ever repeating the same course. The average 70-year-old American colonial person in the 1700s heard more hours of sermons and lectures than anyone who had earned 10 degrees in a university. Listen to what he goes on to write. These sermons dealt intelligently with every issue of culture and averaged 20 to 50 pages in length. I have six this morning. The pastors taught that the role of biblical religion as the prime interpreter for political matters of the day, rather than humanism or deism holding ideological preference, in reality the Christian doctrines flowing from the Reformation were at the forefront during the formation of America. Furthermore, they positively impacted social and political affairs. Theology was influencing politics, and this man writes, it always will. Likewise, eternal political principles were proclaimed from pulpits with regularity and vigor. These biblical principles taught from pulpits in every colony proclaimed inalienable rights for each individual which had been denied by tyrants through the ages. These rights included, are you ready? This is what they preached on. Equality before the law. The right to trial by jury, the choice of leaders by the people, private ownership of property, the right to life as sacred, 
the separation of powers in government with checks and balances against corruption. And this man writes, Note that the Word of God was the source and guarantor of these unalienable rights. Not the king, not the government, and not the documents. The Word of God. Mainly the first five books of the Bible. Did you know that? The pastors communicated these truths through sermons, books, and pamphlets. They taught the people several hours on Sunday, in weekly town hall meetings, in election sermons, and sermons on days of fasting and prayer. The clergy were also the presidents of nearly all the colleges. For example, Harvard's rules declared, and I'm quoting Harvard University here, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider Well, the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. The Great Awakening, the clergy, and the colleges prepared the American colonists to withstand the firestorm to come. However, it became clear to the colonists, especially during the war with France in the 1750s, that England had planned to suppress the liberties of the American colonists. They knew they were going to destroy us. So what happened? Colonial leaders, including Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, and John Witherspoon, perceived that unless the independent colonies could unite, they could never defeat the British juggernaut. They knew that a house or a nation divided cannot stand. There were two groups of patriots that needed to merge if they were to have any hope. One group, spiritually revived in the Great Awakening, were infuriated at the English attempts to destroy the religious liberty. The king had a plan to forcibly impose the Church of England upon the colonies. The other group emphasized tax issues, personal liberty, material gain, and small government. These three men saw the religious side and the economic and the free side and said, we've got to join them together, and they did. Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry were committed to uniting these two groups. They, as businessmen and ardent believers, do you hear me carefully? Businessmen and ardent believers, the church layman was going to do what the pastor couldn't. Listen to what these two men did. They knew that the best coalition builders often were those who understood both camps because they themselves shared the love of God that animated one and the dislike for bureaucrats and taxes that propelled the other. And every pastor says, Oh God, send me an honest, God-fearing, God-loving businessman who loves Jesus and loves the country and use them. In a great way. Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolution, had worked for decades to teach his fellow citizens in Boston the biblical basis of liberty. In 1773, Samuel Adams created Facebook of his day and began the committees of correspondence. Within a few months, 80 towns throughout New England joined the committees. 400 more towns joined by 1774. Adams taught that, quote, the religion and public liberty of a people are so intimately connected, their interests are so interwoven and cannot exist separately. You can't have one side without the other. 
They saw this. They knew this. He said it does not take a majority to prevail, but an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. Can I read that again? It does not take a majority, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. They won't be quiet. Patrick Henry, the great coalition builder from the South, was the first great speaker to inspire both factions of patriots opposed to British tyranny. Henry, who like Adams had been converted to Christ in the Great Awakening as a teenager, used his great abilities to unite people of varied interests around higher principles. His ability at coalition building was put to the ultimate test in his famous speech to the Virginia legislature in 1775. His impromptu speech, the last one of the day, many believe was the greatest oration in American history. Henry appealed to the Virginia leaders and future presidents and called them to sacrifice for the holy cause of liberty. He asked his skeptical audience, quote, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? His answer was clear, Forbid it! Almighty God, I know not what course others may take, but as for me... Say it with me. Give me liberty or give me death. His once skeptical audience rose to their feet in unison and committed themselves to fight for their freedom and for that of their children. The British war began three weeks later. Patrick Henry, right here in Virginia, I don't have time this morning to read to you about James Madison, JMU University, but I would encourage you to read. What a patriot. What a man. He knew liberty. He knew Christ. Reverend John Witherspoon, president of Princeton College, knew very well the tyranny of the English. He was a Scot and had witnessed the English army ravaging his homeland, killing thousands of Scots destroying their heritage and condemning thousands to exile or slavery in America. Reverend Witherspoon, a Scottish man and president of Princeton College, in the coming years inspired and educated many of the future leaders of our country. Listen to this. He taught the biblical basis for a self-governing republic and the biblical mandate to resist tyrannical rulers. Among his students was James Madison the father of the Constitution. Witherspoon was so effective as an educator that one British officer during the war with England proclaimed that Witherspoon was a, quote, political firebrand who perhaps had not less a share in the revolution than Washington himself. God used the educators and the businessmen of the United States of America to transform it, and to change it. You know what my prayer was this week? That God would use the business people and the educators 
in our church, in our community, to shape and mold and change the next generation. And let me just remind you of this. We have something more powerful than Congress, something more powerful than Washington, D.C. You know what it is? It's our family. And then it's our church. And then it's our community. And we will pass on what Almighty God has mandated us to pass on to our children and stand as Patrick Henry and say, give me liberty or give me death. And when God's people do that and join together, America will remain free for another 245 years. But if we bow the knee, listen closely, read the pages of history and what followed on the hills of Marxism and look over to communist China and you'll see where we'll be. Let us pray together for our nation. Father, you are a great and awesome God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and man and woman, right and wrong, and you are worthy of all of our praise. Oh God, we are unworthy to even speak to you this morning, but we thank you that you gave to us the greatest gift of eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ to pay for our sin and to give us a righteousness that we could never earn. And because of Him, Father, we can approach your throne this morning and you will hear us. We thank you, O God, that even though we are sinners in our nation, we have rebelled against you. We've tried to rip your Ten Commandments off the walls. We've tried to remove your name from school and society. We ask you to forgive us. And Lord, for us as believers, where we have remained silent and enjoyed the passive nature of our freedom, we now see it erode, slowly erode, May we not be quiet. May you raise up more John Witherspoons, more Patrick Henrys, more James Madisons. May you raise them up, Lord, to speak your truth in their workplace, in their schools, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. May you give them strength to do that. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been passive and failed to get involved and help us to do that. And Lord, we are grateful that we know you answer prayer like you did in Daniel's. And we pray for our nation today that, Lord, those you have in leadership this morning who love you and stand for your truth, we are so thankful for them and we know they are there. For those who don't believe in you and ignore you, oh God, we pray that you will convert their heart, that they'll understand the true history and the richness of this nation and its love for you and the gospel. And we pray, Lord, for the freedom of our life and the freedom of our children and our grandchildren. And help us, Father, not to be passive people, but to be active and not just to enjoy our freedom so we can have a good retirement. Help us enjoy our freedom so that we can understand the awesome responsibility of America to share the gospel with the nations of the world. But help us, Father, to share it here at home.
because we have neglected that and we need to do it more. Light a fire under every person under the sound of my voice and help us this week to share your truth, the gospel truth with somebody in our life that may, we may know the blessings of liberty to share the gospel. So help us, Father. Heal our land. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.